everyone. You're listening to The Katie Helper Show, and I'm your host, Katie Helper. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show, where for just $1 a month, you can help make the show happen. And for $5 a month, you'll qualify for great bonus content, including an alternative podcast feed and rarely seen clips that aired on our live shows. Hello, and welcome to the Katie Halper Show. So excited to be here with my Thursday night co-pilot, Leslie Lee. Hey, Kate. Thank you so much for having me back. Happy to be here. Yes, and welcome, viewers. We're so excited to be talking to Kathy Kelly as well as Danny Sherson. Kathy Kelly is a major peace activist who's no big deal, but she has been nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize thrice. She's a thrice Nobel Peace Prize nominee, which I don't know where you are, Leslie, in your nominations. I mean, that's a hat trick. That's impressive in anything. If you get three. Yeah. I mean, yeah, three. Like if you get three Webby uh, <laughs> nominations, three shorty nominations. You put that in your tour bio. I mean, thrice time nominated Webby. I then now three time nominated Nobel Peace Prize. Come that's on. just like insane. That's a really good thing. So, and we're really excited. It's going to be, of course, we're going to be talking about something very serious, Afghanistan. And of course, there's recent news with the bombing, which we'll get into. But, you know, today is a certain day. I don't know if you guys know what day it is. Leslie, you know what day it is, but I think because I told you, right? Yes, only because you told me. Only because I told you. Okay, so today is National Dog Day. And for that occasion, and because we need some levity in our worlds. Uh, you got Taco over there. Nora, can I please have my guest of honor? Thanks. Bodie. Look at Bodie. Say hi, Bodie. Oh, look at Bodie. Oh, it's, come on. Look at Bodie. Bodie's oh. so cute. Uh, she's so cute, right? Bodie, say hi to everyone. You're a star. Taco. She's being Taco's shy. On the- Taco's on his taco cam. Taco's getting his treats right now. Oh, nice. Oh, do you have anything to say? You hear that? <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, boy, he does not sound happy. I've never heard this one. Boy, he she growls a lot, but that's not a growl. Yeah. Bodie's so funny. Yeah. Anyway, Bodie, this is your day. This is your day. So let me share this discovery that I made. I was just walking around, Katie, today. I was walking Taco. And I sent you this text. So this was fun for National Pet Day. I, I was just walking the dog. You didn't even know at taco. this point. Didn't even know. And I come across this. Guys, can you believe it? Bodie's bagels and Bodie's tacos. If you put Ooh. those together, Bodie's tacos... I had no idea Bodhi was such an entrepreneur. I didn't know Bodhi was a small business Well, that's owner. the thing. Oh, wait. Can you bring her back once more? That may be a photo of Bodhi. Hold on. Then we're going to have to do a side-by-side. It's very that's Bodhi, very, right? That's very much okay, Bodhi. That's, that's a Bodhi. So, look, guys, you owe us. You got to pay Bodhi for her image. You did not ask for permission to did use that. Did not ask permission. No contract. Taco now, has she's, contract. Taco has a streaming contract. Does he? Contract. With whom? With me. Oh, of course. Yeah, I should give her. I should give her some rights. But she, yeah, she, the only thing is Bodie. I think the reason they spelled it differently is because Bodie spells her name with an H and they're trying to get away with it. They think yeah. they don't have to pay her yeah. royalties if they spell it without the H. So anyway, thank you, Bodie. Thank you for your cooperation. All right. So bring, I'll bring Taco back. Oh, okay. Oh, nice. That's a good shot of Taco. Now yeah. he knows because he probably saw Bodie. He felt competitive. <laughs> yes, yes. So now he's really hamming it up. Yes, he is. Yeah. He's a big ham. He's a big ham. And we just want to give a shout out to Cynthia Pizza Johnson. Let me just do a screen share of that. We asked for people if they wanted to share their own doggies. And here's oh. one that we got. This is Norbert. Oops. Oh. Cute, right? Cute. Yeah, it's very cute. Happy Dog Day, Norbert. Give it um, talk to some more treats. People are saying 
Taco should get some uh, treats, even though he only is supposed to get treats when he gets uh, subs. He's only supposed to get treats. When oh, he gets, he gets uh, you guys subs on yeah, Struggle Session? Yeah, on Twitch. On, yeah. Wow. All right. We're going to give you some more news later on. We're going to give you even more hard-hitting news than that, if you can imagine. But should we just, look, we, there's, we're going to give you a, a speech, a little speech, and we're just going to play a clip of, of the video of President Biden responding to what just happened in Kabul. Then we're going to bring our, our speakers in. So let's just play that. And then we will bring in our guests. We will not be deterred by terrorists. We will not let them stop our mission. We will continue the evacuation. I've also ordered my commander to develop operational plans to strike ISIS-K assets, leadership, and facilities. We will respond with force and precision at our time, at the place we choose, in the moment of our choosing. Here's what you need to know. These ISIS terrorists will not win. We will rescue the Americans. We will get our Afghan allies out. And our mission will go on. America will not be intimidated. And I have the utmost confidence in our brave service members who continue to execute this mission with courage and honor to save lives and get Americans, our partners, our Afghan allies out of Afghanistan. Okay, and joining us right now to talk about this, Afghanistan, and so much more, our two guests, we're going to bring in Danny Sherson, who is a retired U.S. Army officer, a senior fellow at the Center for International Policy. He served combat tours in Iraq and Afghanistan and later taught history at his alma mater, West Point. His book, Patriotic Descent, America in the Age of Endless War, explores his transition from active duty officer to military dissenter and the meaning and future of patriotism. His latest book is A True History of the United States, Indigenous Genocide, Racialized Slavery, Hypercapitalism, Militarist Imperialism, and Other Overlooked Aspects of American Exceptionalism. So welcome, Danny. Oh, thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Of course. And we are also bringing in Kathy Kelly, who has been an activist for peace and social justice beginning in her youth on Chicago's South Side until the present day, documenting and challenging human rights crises from both direct aggression and sanctions from Bosnia to Iraq to Afghanistan, Yemen, and Palestine's West Bank. So welcome, Kathy. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you to both of you for joining us. Thank you, Katie. It's a pleasure to be with you, Leslie, also. And um, Danny. And Danny, right. Danny, you're muted, by the way, just so you know. Don't want to silence you. Last thing I'd want to do. Wanted to actually start off by asking you about each of your journeys with Afghanistan. The first time you went to the country, what you saw there, how your view of the country has changed, how maybe it hasn't changed. But we could start with you, Kathy, because I know uh, it may take a little longer with you since you've been there so many times. Well, thank you. My first trip into Afghanistan was actually as a guest of the Emergency Surgical Center for victims of war. And I just saw a screenshot of that center today, and they're just doing constant rounds of triage, and they're overwhelmed by the number of injured people that they're trying to rescue. And I had learned of that hospital because of having been in Iraq, and both in Iraq and in Afghanistan, it's a hospital that's beloved, really, because they don't ask any questions. They'll stitch up whoever comes to the emergency room, basically. And the reason I was in Pakistan, uh, this is where I had been, and then I went from Pakistan to Afghanistan, was because we were starting to realize that we really didn't understand very much about 21st century warfare, about the usage of drones, and about surveillance drones and weaponized drones. So we had been going to different communities in Pakistan and human rights leaders and other kinds of uh, places, universities and mosques, and just trying to understand what is the impact of drone warfare. And then we had this invitation to go over to Afghanistan. And I just want you to know that we were also very concerned about Guantanamo. And so at one point, a number of us were fasting to try to bring about closure of Guantanamo. And a friend from D.C. called us and said, did you know that there are 12 kids in a pup tent on a mountainside in the Bamiyan province of Afghanistan? fasting with you? And we said, huh? And they said, well, if you'd read your emails, you'd know. And these kids were trying to email us and tell us, we are so in union with what you're doing. We're doing it too. So that next trip to Afghanistan, I was able to meet those youngsters. And that occasioned probably close to 27 trips to 
Kabul and sometimes to Bamiyan for me as a guest of some of the most brave and passionate and dedicated youngsters always seeking to find inter-ethnic ways to overcome conflicts and also share resources with the neediest of people. The U.S. had so much to learn from them. And then how many, so how many times did you return and what was the context of your uh, other visits? Well, I um, probably returned about 27 times. And each time I would meet people who spoke about increasing desperation, women who couldn't feed their children. They'd say, I feel like I'm going insane. I think I'm losing my mind. What's the matter? I have nothing for my children to eat. In refugee camps that were always squalid and desperate, people without access to water were just frantic. What, what would they do? People were constantly looking for livelihoods, and increasingly the only livelihood for the young men was to go to work for one warlord or another. That isn't what they wanted to do. They didn't want to pick up guns and learn how to kill, but they did want to put food on the table. And then I also saw just amazing cooperation amongst people to share very meager resources. Women making the heavy blankets so desperately needed and then those blankets being distributed in refugee camps where people's only possibility for warmth was often burning plastic or burning old tires. And then I saw young people who had some education Passing that on to others, especially street kids who are child laborers and sometimes just sent to go and pick up the scraps in the marketplace. I, I saw so much surveillance being done by these youngsters. And they did it with a notebook and a pen. And they did surveys. And they went house to house going up the mountaintops to the places where there was no water. So that's where the rent was the lowest. And would ask the widows and the single moms, how many times a week do you eat beans? What's your source of income? And if the income earner was under 12 years of age, then that survey went to the top of the deck and they tried to find ways to get resources into those families. So sure, I also saw rising despair and, and a sense of just utter frustration with militarism, whether it was the United States military, the Afghan military, the black sites, the torture sites, the forward operating bases that often contributed to rising corruption. Yes, there was a rising sense of despair and, and then no expectation whatsoever that any military was going to do anything for them. And Danny, what about you? What was your first visit there like and how does it compare to Kathy's? Well, it's very different from Kathy's. We run in the same circles now. This isn't the first time we've been on uh, a webinar or a show together. And every time I'm a bit in awe, sorry, Kathy, that I get to do that. Because the truth is my first experience with Afghanistan was largely cinematic. White male from working class Staten Island who really liked war movies. Rambo 3. I mean, what a dedicated to the Mujahideen, totally taken out of historical context. And that was my first foray into it. I didn't get there until January of 2011 or February of 2011 is when I stayed. I went for like a week-long visit to see what was ahead of me before that. But it first comes back on my radar. And by the way, Rambo 3 is the first movie that I saw in the theaters. Like, you can't make that up. It's a true story uh, with my father on New York Lane. 2001, I'm in boxing class at West Point, and someone runs in and says something about the World Trade Center and the Twin Towers, and suddenly Afghanistan is back on my radar. And the truth is, as a just barely 18-year-old West Point cadet, I couldn't wait to get in the fight. I thought that would be the fight. It seemed obvious. That we didn't talk about the Taliban's willingness to negotiate or any of the nuance there. It was, this has to be a militarized solution. I hope it is. I want to be part of it. My biggest fear is I'll miss it. It'll be a quick war like the Gulf War. I mean, I don't like the way I sound in any of this, but I feel like that's a bit of authenticity we need. But I went to Iraq first, right, which is so instructive in so many ways. But so I got to Afghanistan in basically February 2011 uh, as part of the, the Obama surge. It was my second surge. I'd been in the Iraq surge in Baghdad. I was down in Kandahar province. Kathy, I don't know if you've been southwest of Kandahar. You probably have. I was in Zari, Panjway district. So really out in the country and, and just miles from where the Taliban had formed. 
Sangasar Village, Mullah Omar's home. I've been there. And basically, I was the opposite of what Kathy was doing. I was criminally complicit in a, a militarized response that was hopeless and, and largely counterproductive in many ways. And I was in charge of a small subdistrict known as Pashmul. I had about 100 scouts under my command, and, and we duped it out. We duped it out in the Taliban's home turf. And I joke all the time that we were always playing an away game. And it was like the Yankees going into Fenway Park. It was a tough place to fight. It was a tough place to be. I lost. I mean, at best, I got to a draw. But one of the things that struck me is some of the stuff that, that Kathy has talked about, which was, and I felt this way in Iraq, but it, it was particularly acute in Afghanistan, which was just the people who were the real victims. And there was just this horrifying sense that I shouldn't be here and I am here and I'm not part of the solution. No matter how many dollars I give out, no matter how much the people in my life circle tell me I'm a hero, they can give me medals. My colonel can tell me that we're making this place better because I'm giving out money or, or whatever it was. The truth is I was a human radio with a airstrike on the other end. And that was my experience. And, and I was like a voyeur of the war on terror, except I was also a participant. And I left and I really never was able to forget the place. Not just because it was beautiful in a million ways, not just because I had emotional trauma from it, but because I had felt this sense that I was part of the problem rather than the solution. And it took me too long, but eventually I felt like I had to say something about it. And the place has never left me. I don't think it ever will. And as someone who wrote a, a history book, what parts of the history of Afghanistan, of the United States, of foreign policy, of interventionism, do you think are most important to know, to understand the current moment in Afghanistan? If I had to point to one thing, it would be that the American experience in Afghanistan or the American meddling in Afghanistan does not start on September 12th. You know, it doesn't start in October when the Rangers jumped in and we watched those videos at West Point. We all wished we were one of them, right? That's not where it starts. I mean, the reality is we're involved with the Mujahideen, of course. Uh, the CIA decides it's going to give the Soviets their Vietnam. Those lines were literally said in Rambo, catalyzing this, in many cases, backing the most reactionary elements of said Mujahideen uh, because we chose the, in some ways, the easy option, which was to work through uh, Pakistan, which was ruled by a dictator who had essentially murdered his predecessor. We knew the Saudis would match our money. So we basically had the state Taliban helping us to fund the Mujahideen. So the American meddling there, I think it puts one of the things as a historian that I would say is that it, it puts to lie the notion that the motive of the United States to go into Afghanistan, whether overtly after 9-11 or more covertly and wink, wink, everyone knew we were there before, never had very much to do with human rights. I mean, the Afghan war and its initial motives never was really much about Afghans. Now, that doesn't mean that there wasn't progress in those cities. It doesn't mean we don't owe, I think, reparations to the people of Afghanistan. It doesn't mean we don't have obligations to those who work with us and even those who didn't, right? Because they're all human beings in a country that we helped to tear apart. But the American story there goes a lot deeper. And the last thing I would say is there's a misunderstanding. And Kathy, please correct me if, if you see something maybe a little more nuanced than this, but it bothers me a lot when people say, the Afghans are warriors, or they're barbarians, or they're nuts, or they've always been. Sometimes there's this idea, especially on the right, especially on the anti-war right, to the extent there is such a thing. It's we shouldn't be in Afghanistan because it's an asshole country, like Trump says, or because you can't beat these people because it's the graveyard vampires and they've always been like lunatics. And it's just the misunderstanding of what what Islam, which was never one thing, but what Islam's plural were in Afghanistan prior to the Soviet invasion, a misunderstanding of how uh, modernist that could be in certain areas, to the extent that I even accept that word and the syncretic and Sufi nature of a lot of Islam. I just, I really don't like when the people of Afghanistan, who most of these folks have never met an Afghan, just put them in a box as somehow savage and different. And I think I would point to that too. Kathy, do you have anything you want to add to that? Well, I think that I do want to add that after September 11, a group of people who had lost their loved ones on September 11th came together and joined a number of us who had decided we would walk from Arlington National Cemetery to Ground Zero. And we were joined by people who had lost their loved ones, but who really very shortly after that attack had 
come up with the, the banner, more or less. Our grief is not a cry for war. And they then went over to Afghanistan and their group cohered when they met with EMT workers in Kabul. I think that's terribly important, but I also think that representative of a much different strand of approaching Afghanistan was the use of a bomb that was nicknamed the mother of all bombs. And Danny, I'm glad your head is nodding because I'm sorry, I don't remember the date or the exact name of that bomb. But right. you know, it we was- called the Moab. Yeah, the Moab. We love that. We love the acronyms. Yeah. And it was used to bomb what looked like a kind of remote area. Why would they use this bomb going after sheep that are grazing? But it turns out that underground was a very sophisticated network that the U.S. had constructed for underground training and development of the uh, Mujahideen fighters. And so they wanted to wipe that all out. But that's what it's been again and again. The United States saturates an area with its military weaponry, with the strewn ordnance, with the complex infrastructure to train people how to kill. And then it boomerangs. It comes back. And so, no, our grief today also ought not be a cry for more war. We have family friends, Phyllis Rodriguez, Orlando Rodriguez, and they lost their son, Greg Rodriguez, in the second tower. And they were one of the early people to say our grief is not a cry for war. And they wrote an op-ed like right after it happened saying, Don't, do not invade, do not kill people in the name of our son. And I know I'm being very naive, but I still, it, it's just galling. The New York Times didn't publish it. That makes sense, but it's also shocking. So yeah, there there were people like that and their voices were totally erased because our media presents the spectrum for political views for the corporate media ranges from what, like on the most radical leftist end of it is that Iraq was the bad war and Afghanistan was the good war slash or the first Gulf war was the good war. And the second Gulf war was the bad war, although they were one war because they never really, yeah, but that's another story. I wanted to know your guys' thoughts on the media's representation of what is happening and if anything stands out and how you think it's it's being framed. Because I just, it struck me that the very framing is pretty striking. The way it's being discussed as a debacle, I'm not sugarcoating the various problems, but it is being presented that way as if it's like this uniformly disastrous thing. So just wanted to know your guys' thoughts on that. Sure. Kitty, one thing I noticed is that I think it's easily provable that in the last two weeks, there has been far more coverage of Afghanistan than in the last 20 years. And that's a problem. People were almost coached not to care about Afghanistan because there wasn't a hint of interest. And not in the mainstream media, not really in the the cable sorts of news shows. You had to look pretty hard to find consistent analysis of what was going on in Afghanistan. And certainly the dramas that have gone on in the last two weeks are are riveting. But I don't think people, even in this heightened coverage, understand that Afghanistan is a country that's beset by drought in 24 of 33 provinces, that people in Afghanistan have to endure severe acute malnourishment. 41% of their children are stunted. One out of every three girls has severe anemia. It's still amongst the countries in the world with the highest rate of infant mortality. I mean, there's so many ways in which we, our hearts ought to go out to people in Afghanistan. And we could well understand that there would be high levels of frustration and maybe even rage. And the other thing that I think isn't covered is a clear sense of the consequences of the weaponry that we've been using against people in Afghanistan. I mean, the latest version of the Hellfire missile is grotesque. That missile, which is fired by drones, by Apache helicopters, but also by Predator drones, is now outfitted so that when it lands, a hundred pounds of molten lead fall on your car or on your home. And then imagine a lawnmower, these uh, blades or a switchblade, they snap out and begin to rotate. So that the victim can be chopped to pieces. 
This is terrifying to people, utterly terrifying. So when we talk about the war on terror, we have to factor in how terrifying Guantanamo was, how terrifying the black sites of torture at Bagram were, how terrifying every single bomb that's hit a village or a roadway has been, and how terrifying it is for people to suffer bereavement and displacement and not to be able to control their governance and not to have any idea how they can be protected. That's terrifying. I couldn't agree more with Kathy on that. Katie, one of the things you mentioned is like the left-right spectrum and how circumscribed it really is in American mainstream media. I mean, you'll never hear the phrase state terror, whether it's describing the actions of, of, of Israel or the United States, right? Terrorism is one thing. Uh, it, it is a brown person, it is a Muslim person, and it is a suicide bomber, and that's all it is. And if it's like a Palestinian or an Afghan, like more is the better. There's like just a total misunderstanding of that. But I'm going to speak to a different element of this question about how the media is covering it. One of the problems, as Kathy mentioned, and I think the banner came up, like five minutes of coverage on Afghanistan and the major networks over the last year, or it's been minimal. Purposefully, I mean, these wars are wages and abstraction with as much distance between them because the empire learned. The empire learned that less body bags means it's easier to maintain this low threshold of war. Now, it doesn't feel like a low threshold under those hellfires, but it does for a lot of Americans because it's, it's hidden from you. It's classified in many cases. But most of the commentators about what's happening now started the clock a week ago or 10 days ago. And if you start the clock then, it is all Biden's fault. The problem is that we didn't stay long enough. The problem is that we weren't prepared enough. But if you start the clock earlier, it's a whole different story. Uh, what strikes me about the media coverage is who gets to cover it? Who gets to cover it? General Petraeus got like 4,000 words in the New Yorker the other day. General Petraeus, loser of two wars, convicted criminal, liar, right? Snake oil salesman extraordinaire. Max Boot still has a column at the Washington Post. So does David Ignatius. Been wrong about everything ever since 9-11. And they're still telling us that the problem is not enough soldiers, not enough surging, more residual forces, and all these terms they come up with. And I think I have a real problem with that notion because it, they get to decide where they start the clock. They are not able to describe what the meaningful long-term positives that an American militarized response can provide. And yet the dissenting voices are still largely left out of the media. Now, what's interesting about that is twofold. Let's take Petraeus. Petraeus is utterly out of step with the veterans of the Afghan war. We shouldn't necessarily follow what the veterans say just because they're veterans. I reject that kind of self-righteousness, which is the cardinal sin of the soldier. And my peers don't always love it when I say that. But if 73% of them last year were for full withdrawal, Petraeus is out of step. Max Boot and David Ignatius and whoever else, they're out of step with the civilian population of the United States, which is also has long been against this war. But what they've done is they use the human rights, they use the women's rights, they use the tragedy at the airport as like, it's a canard. It's an opportunistic way to say that we need more military force, we should have stayed longer, which misunderstands, I think, the fact that the United States, in many ways, our military response, depending on when you start the clock, actually you start the clock anywhere but a week ago, has been a, a party to the conflict, a catalyst and an accelerant. And part of the problem is that the American people are more enamored with the guy with all the medals, like David Petraeus, than they are with the expert in even the basement of Foggy Bottom or at the NGO or sitting in jail like Kathy or something because they're actually trying to do something. The American people are more enamored with that broad-shouldered, bemetaled general. And it, look where it's led us, right? 20 years and it, you know, it ended here and it hasn't even ended. So that's my major problem with the media coverage is it's still militarized. It's rehashing the same sort of like debunked notions that more troops are or just stay a little longer, light at the end of the tunnel, and it's still being accepted. And if the mainstream media chooses to, to post those people, to give them the slot on CNN, that's all the American people are going to hear in this rare moment where we're getting a lot of Afghan coverage. The problem is I'm glad they're covering Afghanistan, but the people they're having cover it are giving us all the wrong notions. And I think that's truly a tragedy. And one of the people who could have given us crucially needed information is actually in jail right now, Daniel Hale has been sentenced to prison for being a whistleblower. And one of the things he wanted to make clear was that when he was working as an Air Force analyst, he was 
part of something called Operation Haymaker. And you clarified that U.S. government documents said that 90% of the time, the people that were the targeted victims in that operation turned out not to be combatants at all. Now, that's something people in the United States need to know, because then we can start to ask ourselves, well, why would anybody feel such rage that they would organize a suicide bombing? Now, I have no idea who has organized the suicide bombing, but I do know that if you're a police person and a terrible crime happens, you're supposed to ask, okay, what was the motive? And we can't just write it off. As Danny has said, we can't just say, well, it's just, you know, all Afghans are barbaric. There are reasons why people have grievances against the United States. This isn't to justify, but if we don't try to understand, we'll never be able to emerge into some kind of a peaceable way of living. And I don't think the military or the military contractors will help us understand, not the people of Boeing or Raytheon or General Dynamics or Lockheed Martin. They understand that if they're going to keep selling weapons, they better have a war going on in this world. Maybe once upon a time, people made weapons to fight wars, but now we make wars to sell weapons. Like, I'd just like to add just one quick thing to that. One of the things that's been sold to the American public, and Kathy, I'm so glad you brought up Daniel Hale, is that these weapons, the ordinance that I called in that Daniel Hale was dealing with, we're told that they're precision and all of this. And of course, that is belied by the statistics, but a lot of people don't read the statistics. In 2018 and 19, the U.S. and our allies were actually killing more civilians than the Taliban. That doesn't surprise me because if they're, this is how much human error plays in. My, one of my platoons called an airstrike and a Marine Corps colonel flying an F-16 put longitude latitude in instead of the military grid coordinate system and dropped a bomb on our base, killing a few Afghans and sending a blackout. I thought all of my friends were dead. That was just a thing that happened. It was just another day in Afghanistan. And that's not even the half of it, of course, the kill radius on these things. But the point is, there's so much human error in this. The idea that these are precision weapons is a farce. And of course, it feeds the resistance narrative and it ends up empowering the Taliban into what they want to be, which is the Afghan nationalist resistance. And so what changed your mind, Danny, or your politics or your worldview? It's always a tough question looking for like a single pivot. The truth is when I, and I'm almost, I am embarrassed of this. When I got to Afghanistan, I was a professional soldier. I was a captain. I had been in Iraq. I turned against the war in Iraq. A combination of experience and research did that. Experience side, I, I realized we started this civil war. I walked into Baghdad in 2006 when there were four or 5,000 civilians being killed a month and 100 American soldiers. I mean, the bodies were just left there every morning for us to find and account for and pick up. And thank you, Julian Assange, and thank you, Chelsea Manning, for the Iraq war logs that told us that. Sorry that they, the state had to put you in prison, but right. I knew that. Not the people who actually killed people and committed war crimes, yeah. So I saw that, that we were policing a civil war we started and that both sides were attacking us. And I think I just saw the hopelessness of it. But I, for a moment, was on that side where I was like, well, the Iraq war is wrong, but I was really on the Obama train. Like I thought he was going to save us. I was following the primary from Baghdad and I, and I wanted to believe. And then I went over to Fort Knox afterwards and I was like secretly canvassing in a hoodie for Obama in Southern Indiana across the Ohio River. I mean, I was on the train and, and I guess I wasn't so sure about the good war notion that Obama had, but I trusted him. And I was so desperate, frankly, to get out of the Bush years and, and everything I'd seen in Iraq. But the Obama surge really broke me to a certain extent and made me more systemically anti-war and systemically like dissenting against militarism because I realized that there are blue surges and red surges and that there is liberal interventionist militarism and then there's conservative hawkish militarism that, 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 that they've always been twins in American history. By the time I got to Afghanistan, I was a mercenary. And the truth is I had, I had an ex-wife and a new one, and I had a child, and I liked healthcare, and my entire identity was the military, and everyone I knew was, and I had convinced myself that good people have to stay in, and my superiors who I did respect, which wasn't many, but some told me that I had to do that. But the truth is, I, I didn't believe in any of it. So it was Iraq that turned me, but it was Afghanistan that turned me systemic and structural in my critique, and then, of course, leaving there and then going to teach a bit. I reached my breaking point. First of all, I had like a nervous breakdown basically in grad school, just personally, where I just like the white knuckling didn't hold. And then that led to some sort of slow, way too slow, why I'm still doing penance now, like rebirth. But 
I think it was the Iraq war that broke it, but there was something really off-putting about knowing that I was there for a paycheck and an identity that I was like a professional soldier. And that's why I often said later that I was like a mercenary and that some of my friends don't like when I say that they they think it's like an insult to them, but that's how I personally felt. I don't want to speak for them, but I knew me and I knew I wasn't a believer. So the Afghan war was, I hate to say like the icing on the cake, but it was just further proof that this whole war on terror or whatever we started calling it by then was, uh, was really a crime and it was destroying America back home. And what do you both have to say to the people who are saying, oh, but women's rights, oh, but, you know, girls' rights, oh, but human rights, we can't leave because of that. What do you have to say about the way that the conflict is being, or the war is being framed as a question of human rights and, and women's rights? Well, I think that after the Vietnam War, personally, I, don't, I didn't know a soul who said, gee, let's see if we can't do that again. And so the military worked very, very hard in sync with think tanks and academics to kick the Vietnam syndrome. They wanted to make sure that in the future, no body bags would be seen. There would be embedded reporters who were embedded with the military. And then very importantly, they had to find a way to market the war as a humanitarian war. Now that I know it should sound like a crazy oxymoron. How could you have a humanitarian war? But they had to say that this war would protect the women. It would protect the children. And then, you know, it didn't, but there wasn't the kind of reporting or investigation dedicated to find out, well, what about the women? What about the children? And we should have been clued in through the Iraq war. I mean, in between the 1991 war and the 2003 war, hundreds of thousands of Iraqi children died tortuous deaths of starvation and gastrointestinal diseases, pneumonia, those conditions combined. How could they survive? They had only dirty water to have access to. We had docked out every electrical facility all across Iraq, caring about children. And those little lives were snuffed out and it was done shrouded in almost total secrecy. So then you get to Afghanistan and the majority of the people in Afghanistan are women and children. But the idea that the United States troop deployments were protecting the women and the children, maybe just one statistic is helpful. At the height of the retrograde mission to take the troops out of Afghanistan, believe it or not, it was costing an average of $2 million per soldier for one year. At that same time, the amount that it would have cost to put iodized salt in the diet of a baby who would almost certainly have brain deficiency because of the severe hunger the child was experiencing. But you know, the UN knows how to do it. You get salt into the diet, it can offset the possibility of brain deficiency. Then it would cost five cents per child per year. So can we imagine Lady Justice in the scales? Which one are you going to pick? But the choice is never made. For the U.S. democracy. Democracy is based on education, but we're undereducated and misinformed. Uh, I, uh, yeah, I always felt that I was part of the problem. Like I said, I mean, we put, we would shine up my mission, which was the on the ground, like spear point military mission, right? We would shine it up with a human rights veneer, just a little gloss on there. No, and we would speak really intelligently about it. There was a PowerPoint slot I got to fill out every day saying all the wonderful things I did. And that was awkward because they were attacking my base every day. So, I mean, I could barely even get to the people, but we would pretend. And it was great. And everybody just rubbed each other's back and said that this is what we're doing. But even if you look back historically, it's clear that's not why we went. Again, like I said, we backed some of the most reactionary elements of the Mujahideen who became warlords, some of whom coalesced into something similar to the Taliban or became younger Taliban sort of fighters. Um, even down in Kandahar, I think that the anecdotal can be instructive. The people we worked with, the power brokers in Kandahar who were, quote, on our side, which is complicated. There, it never was that linear. And I don't blame them for also working with the Taliban, whether it was the contractors or the sort of local tribal chiefs that we worked with. First of all, they were all talking to the Taliban, which I would have too. Because we were leaving. I don't blame him for a second. Second of all, the way they treated their wives, the way they treated the young boys in their villages, 
there was often only like a barely a little light between them and what the Taliban supposedly was. So many of the people that we were allied with were not living particularly different. I mean, they still cloistered their wives. They still, there was a pretty big bocce boss, which is like a, a, a child rape culture that was really big down in Kandahar. We were basically told not to do anything about that, that don't alienate the villagers. So clearly that wasn't about human rights. If we're not stopping child rape, like what are we doing? And we can't say that it's that, right? I mean, we could have that strategic argument, but clearly that wasn't the motivator. They were growing the same opium and poppy. The local police chief went everywhere with my colonel. One time I was walking through a field and I said, oh, we better report this poppy field. There's a lot of future heroin that's going to go to Paris and who knows where else, maybe back to my neighborhood. Um, and then the elder next to me, he laughed. He said, you can't burn this field. This is Shafi Khan's field. Well, Shafi Khan was my colonel's number one guy. So in other words, the point is that this wasn't true everywhere. And obviously in some of the urban centers, there was certainly more progress and all that. But the idea that it was that's what motivated us, I find that to be really disingenuous, especially when it comes from the pro-war crowd, especially it comes from the people who were wrong about this from the start, who were wrong about Iraq, who were wrong about Libya, who were wrong about Syria, and they still get to weigh in and say, look, it was always about human rights. That was never true. That was never true down where we were fighting. And by the way, where I was in Kandahar, there were basically three areas that we were told were the key decisive areas if we're going to win this war during the surge. So I was there at the height of the troop counts. Helmand province and Kandahar province in the south and then the northeast, like Kunar and Nuristan. If we could beat the Taliban there, we could win. And the truth is I got fought to a standstill. I didn't have any time for nation building. So when people say nation building didn't work in Kandahar where I was, or they say nation building didn't work across Afghanistan, I say, well, that's true. It did work one place, though, the suburbs of northern Virginia outside D.C., where all the war industry executives work, because they all put additions on their McMansions. So nation building was hyper successful there where wealth increased exponentially during the last 20 years. And that may sound snarky, but I think if we do not look at that, then we're not seeing the big picture about who profited and who didn't. My soldiers died for thirty to $40,000 a year. Afghans died for way less or, or nothing. And they weren't even asked. They weren't even asked whether they wanted to, whether they we should be there. And I just think that we have to keep that in perspective. And I reject when the hawks tell me about human rights, I think we have to stop listening. And what are your guys' thoughts on what happened tonight? Who was responsible? How Biden has responded? Also, Biden's decision in general and his execution of it. What mistakes were made? What aspects of the decisions were good? So it's a, a lot of questions that I just shot at you guys at once. Let's start with your thoughts on the what happened today. The beauty, I'm, I'm going back to that banner, our grief is not a cry for war. When President Biden said, we will hunt you, we will find you, we will never forget, we will never forgive, we will punish you. I, I think it belies another question. We will ask, we will you know, investigate, we will certainly try to bring to justice, but you have to at least be willing to ask about the motives and the grievances. Uh, I, you know, hearts, arms will ache for loved ones who will never return. And this is a terrible tragedy. Afghans, many of whom I do know quite well, because mostly I was with uh, Shia Hazara Afghans. They know that from an attack on a girl's school um, in May of this past year, where I believe there were 60 people killed, mostly schoolgirls. There was an attack on a an obstetrics board, a gynecology hospital, the previous year, 40 people killed. The United States attacked a hospital in Kunduz and for an hour and a half continued to attack it, even after the doctors without borders who ran the hospital said, you're attacking a hospital. And 41 people were killed. And one of the survivors, and his name was Khalid Ahmad, I met him while he was in his wheelchair, and he, he said to me, why did your people want to do this to us? We were only trying to help people. So to stand up and say what is probably necessary to say in order for Democrats ever to be elected again and to be strong and to be tough, I just I, it's not really relevant. It's not relevant to the grief and the bloodshed and the wrongfulness that has marked United States policies in Afghanistan and in Iraq since the beginning of these wars. U.S. service members are killed. 
That will be a very big story. That will be a much bigger story than the 41 killed in Kunduz, right? In the hour long attack on that hospital. No one was held accountable, not really. I mean, the military investigates itself, just like the generals choose each other. It's a system where everything flows downhill or there's no accountability at all, or it's administrative. I take seriously those deaths. It happened to be mainly Marines, it seems, but I will tell you the former cadets of mine are out there, right? Students of mine, friends of mine are still in. And sure, I take it seriously, but th this is something that we never discuss. I think there's two key components of what happened today. I'm not apologizing for the attack. I'm not really a fan of twin suicide bombings. I don't really like violence at all at this point. I'm kind of over it. But I will say it wasn't the Taliban who did the attack. It looks like it was probably the, at least the responsibility was taken and our intel sources say it was ISIS Khorasan, this spinoff of ISIS. We stayed so long in Afghanistan that the Taliban weren't extreme enough. We stayed so long that spinoff groups more extreme than the Taliban formed. This happens everywhere. And it's part of the problem with the whole cut the snake off the snake's head off special forces raids mentality that has driven U.S. operations in Iraq, Afghanistan, and elsewhere for so long. Like a phoenix, a more extreme successor will rise. And Joe Biden was saying, we're going to hunt you down to the ends of the earth. The mission's not over. I didn't like that line. Like, this is not over. Like, we're not done until what? Until we wipe out ISIS Khorasan? I'll tell you what. If we're not there, we don't get attacked. And that sounds so simple, but no one ever mentions it. I mean, I was there on the 10th anniversary of 9-11. A Reuters reporter came to do a profile of me. Why? Because I was so interesting. No, because they were looking for a New Yorker. And there aren't a lot of New Yorkers, right? So the, the Deep South and the Mountain West dominates the demographics of the military. An island, though. It's not really. Right, right. No, yeah. It's like it's a, a rock. quasi-New York, right? It's always an interesting place. But we claim Wu-Tang and nothing else. or at least I know, that, It's the best. That, yeah. <laughs> that's all we've got. But the, the bottom line is they looked, they wanted a New Yorker, right? So they profiled me and I, I got in trouble because I told them we're fighting farm boys with guns. This has nothing to do with 9-11. It was all quoted in an article. My colonels weren't happy. It's all true. But the point is, I was already saying, if we're not here, we don't have to fight these rural villagers who are resisting us, whether they call themselves Taliban or call themselves whatever. The point is, as long as we're at the airport, as long as we're in these places, and maybe now we got to get people out and all that. But if we don't understand the context that we fuel resistance by our militarized presence, then that doesn't take the responsibility off people who did these bombings because they they're not just going to kill Americans they're going to kill anybody in the area. But I, I hate this idea that because there's an attack, it, it fuels the next iteration of violence. It's like just this cycle. And I'm afraid it's going to continue this way. Well, one of the things that Biden said, right, when he gave his speech saying that, you know, this isn't about we got to get out of there. And we also have other places. So it's metastasized. The terrorist threat has metastasized. And then he names other places like Somalia, talks about Asia and Africa. How much is this also about diversifying our military industrial complex portfolio? I, I'll just start there really quick, just because I've write a lot about this. The small conflicts, like the like Iraq and Afghanistan, we put 100,000 soldiers there at one point or another. The American people are done with that. I think even most of the, even the military doesn't really want to do that again. But it's the small wars. It's the, the classified wars. It's the proxy drone, commando, mercenaries that we hire. And sometimes our American slims, they're like apartheid South Africans still. It's, it's unbelievable who will hire. Those conflicts will continue. And, and if you need to have an enemy, and if that helps the war industry to maintain its profits, then how great to take the ISIS franchise in Afghanistan, most of them have never left Afghanistan or Pakistan, and then tie it to an ISIS franchise in Somalia and an ISIS franchise in Yemen. I mean, it's so convenient and it all looks great on a map. You can color it all in and say, look, see all these red places? They have an ISIS affiliate. But most of those people have never really traveled. They have no real affiliation to ISIS Central. Same was true for Al-Qaeda. We create the myth of our enemies. I mean, in some ways, we created bin Laden in a certain sense, like not just literally because he was fought, fighting on our side in the Mujahideen times, but we build the legend of these people up by giving them more power and more scope than they ever had. And those wars, like in Somalia, Niger, West Africa, 
they continue at a low boil for us because we keep minimal soldiers on the ground. We don't talk about it in the media and we classify whatever there is to know. So you only hear about American operations in Africa when four Green Berets die in Niger. And even Lindsey Graham, who says he's the hawk's hawk and he's a foreign policy expert, admits, I, I didn't even know we had troops in Niger. What are they doing there? And then he goes back on it. We're like, Lindsey, we know you didn't know. Your first instinct was true. It's pretty obscene that we only find out that America's killing people in a place when a few Americans die. That, that scares me. And so I think it is, it's, what worries me is that Biden's going to take what happened here in Afghanistan and tie it to a worldwide ISIS network that in many ways is completely fabricated and it's a mirage. We should also, I think, remember that in June of this year, the United States Air Force asked for $10 billion and they'll get it. Maybe it won't come till next year, but that's what the price is for them to wage what they call over the horizon attacks. They want to be able to, to stage United States aircraft and weaponized drones in Kuwait and the United Arab Emirates and Qatar and in a aircraft carrier in the middle of the ocean. Now, you you know, the ISKP, Islamic State in the Khorasan province, they don't have $10 billion, but quite a lot of weaponry will be aimed at them and surveillance will be aimed at them. But where has it gotten us so far? Uh, and then meanwhile, you know, the money that was supposed to go to special commando forces and isn't going to go. Don't think the military is going to say, well, could we put that toward dealing with the climate catastrophe or might right. that help us deal with pandemics? So just yank it right back and keep the same failed, futile, cruel and wrongheaded systems going. Well, quickly, going back to the women's questions, from what I understand, to the extent that there was any improvement for the lives of women and girls, which is hard to do when there's bombs or bombs going off, obviously. But to the extent there was, that was in cities and it was a minority of the country that reaped any benefit of that. And can you guys comment on that? Well, I, th I think that would be true. I mean, um, Googling in Afghanistan, it needs a lot of improvement, but it's important for girls to go to school. And girls were studying hard and trying very, very, very hard to get beyond what would have been their experience in the village lives if they lived in the urban areas. And, and Danny is right. When you go out to the villages, many of the practices which are commonplace in terms of how women are treated and girls are treated, um, in practice well before the Taliban ever existed. And there wasn't a huge change in, in that regard. But it, it is true in the cities, girls were able to get the hang of going to school and many of them studied very, very hard. And I mean, Kathy really knows this side more than me, you know, as a veteran, sometimes there's this credibility given to you that unless you were there, you fought and you carried a weapon, you don't really know. But the truth is anyone who's been in a war knows that you see it like through a soda straw at 30,000 feet in many ways. So where I was, I didn't see any progress for women. In Kandahar City, there was probably some. In Kabul, there was a lot more. And that is like a real, that is a real tragedy because some of it is like a long-term, like 20-year false hope that the American military presence gave to some of the urban women. I take that seriously. I feel horrible about it. But the truth is, I think that we gave that very false hope because we never really had a military solution to the problem. And so while we might be able to cordon off individual enclaves where women could thrive, human rights could improve, well, the Soviets did the same thing. A lot more. Yeah, right. When the so because say what you will about communists, they tend to be pretty decent on feminism. I didn't like the Soviet invasion. I'm really just anti-invasion. I feel pretty strong about that. But the truth is that it's, it's remarkable how much similarity there was because a lot of the same arguments were being made within the Soviet Union in the Politburo when they were debating in their small circles. There were people saying, "Well, what about our allies that we provided this space for and this education and women were in the parliament and all that." You know, it's a very similar thing, but in the long term, there was never a military solution that could provide that for the whole country. So we gave a lot of false hope and people are hurting. Yeah. I mean, you are you are sitting in front of some Spanish Civil War posters, which I believe were uh, I don't know which are I can't see how many of those were anarchists versus communists. Uh, yeah, at least two of them are on the anarchist side. Yeah, I kind of out myself. Everyone's yeah. got their virtue signal. I like to make mine yeah. up. Somewhere. And someone asked, is Biden still going to withdraw? And someone else asked if the 300K men in Afghanistan army was he even existed at all? And then if there was any evidence that there was any Taliban collaboration with this? I think a quick answer to the, I'll start backwards. It's early on with the bombing. So, but, but at least everything I've read so far has said that there's all, all early indicators are that the Taliban wasn't involved, but it's hard, you know, it's so early. So we'll see. 
I don't think it would behoove them. I don't think it would be a, a tactical decision for them. They want to see us go. I think in a lot of ways they want to facilitate our way out so they can get on with the business of creating whatever they want there. Um, whether Biden will still leave, my guess is he probably still will. I've been a big critic of Joe Biden because of that. I've been told I must love Trump. I don't, I reject those binaries, but on Afghanistan, he's gen tended to be more of a skeptic than anyone else. And in the Biden administration, he was. And I think he, he resisted the generals. He resisted the Afghan study group. As for the 300,000 man army, I mean, yes, there aren't any pictures of them all together. They didn't do like a big parade ground of all of them. But what, what we do know is that there were enormous numbers of ghost, ghost soldiers, people who basically were never on the books or went AWOL, basically deserted, and then their officers would take their money. We know that there was a lot of corruption in the the, the forming and the equipping of the Afghan military, America was complicit in a lot of that or turned its head. At my level, I was supposed to have like 60 to 80 Afghan army on my base at any one time. And, you know, it was hit or miss. But I don't blame the Afghan army as like they were cowards or, or anything like that. They fought hard in many cases, but they're not stupid or suicidal. And they saw which way the wind was blowing. And I think that the Taliban takeover turned on morale and psychological factors more than anything else and picked up a momentum and inertia of its own. So I don't blame them. But yes, the Afghan army was, after 20 years of American training and equipping, it certainly wasn't where we said it was, which was, uh, which was largely a mirage again and, and the fantasy and lies told to the American people by the politicians and the generals. And there'll be no accountability for them. Yeah. An anecdote of sorts from, uh, actually, I first learned about this from Newsweek, but the United States Census Bureau puts out reports of just how much weaponry the United States sells to other countries. And I think it was in 2018, I saw $23 million worth of bullets going to Afghanistan. And I thought, well, that's terrible. Why would you send all those bullets to a country that's on the verge of civil war? Why, what's the point of that? And then... I'm not sure that this is what happened, but I began to learn that the previous year, Newsweek was reporting that Afghan soldiers were getting their allotted round of bullets, ammo, and going out to the fields and shooting it up into the air. And then when the bullets would land on the ground, they'd go and grab up the casing and go to the local scrap metal dealer and sell that, and then they could put food on the table. And I thought, oh, well, maybe that's why there had to be this new round of so many bullets, because the Afghan soldiers were shooting their bullets up in the air and not killing Taliban. You can look at the Special Inspector General on Afghan Reconstruction reports, quadrennially filed four times a year, plop every elected representative's desks. People had only to open those up, pick any page almost. And you'd see the description of corruption. And as Danny said, ghost hospitals, ghost schools, ghost soldiers, ghost payrolls. It wasn't a secret. It was well known. Trump looked at one of those reports and he blew up. He said, this ought to be locked up. P people might get a hold of this information. But that's the information that we needed to understand how unlikely the Afghan army at the point where they were, was going to want to fight to defend Ashraf government. People were desperate for jobs, and there were so many warlords and mafia-type figures uh, competing to get people into their ranks and give them weapons and tell them to kill. Uh, it, it, it's been something that was a prescription for the kind of disaster that we're seeing in these past two weeks and certainly today as well. And this other part of the question, which I missed the first time, sorry about that. Thank you, Elliot. The other part of my question was about the possible motive of ISKP for today's attack. I mean, Osama bin Laden may be dead, but he's everything that he hoped would happen after 9-11 happened. And, and this does relate. I mean, he basically, he laid out. First of all, he declared war on America years before. Second of all, he kept talking afterwards. He said, the plan is to pull America in to the greater Middle East, get it bogged down the way we got the Soviets bogged down, and we will bleed them. And he succeeded beyond all imagination than he ever imagined. When we invaded Iraq, he said, I can't believe my luck. I mean, that essentially, I'm paraphrasing. So with ISKP, I think the goal for them largely is they don't want to see the United States leave in some ways. If the United States leaves, they become the very junior partner to a Taliban that doesn't like them. 
who is actually their enemy. And they can't point to the infidel. They can't point to the foreign occupier. So if I'm ISKP, I want to sow chaos because I love chaos, but I want to sow chaos also tactically and strategically, and hopefully get a Democratic president facing the Democratic dilemma to show toughness, because Republicans just get toughness as soon as they put an R next to their name. They're like way tougher than everybody else, apparently. But if I can pull the United States in to stay a little longer, to continue its bombing, to continue some small level proxy, whatever it is of the Afghan war, then I consider that success. And so I think that's the motive of the chaos and the killing. And I just really hope that for once, and I have to say for once, because we never, ever don't do this, we will avoid that and leave and say, if we're not there, they can't attack us. Obviously, the war on terror, depending on the numbers you look at, I mean, 2 million dead, maybe overseas, totally counterproductive. America got nothing out of it. And that's what we're focused on. And I think we have to take a hard look at a society that became so culturally militarized and so obtuse and so distant from its wars that that can seem like a video game, both in its actual technology in terms of the drones in Las Vegas and then commuting home to have dinner with their families at night, something grotesque about that, but also in a broader sense of waging a war that the people aren't involved in. It doesn't touch us, but millions are dying. Yeah, well, thank you guys so much. This was amazing. Any final uh, thoughts that you guys want to share? Well, thank you for having both of us. Just that, I suppose, obvious fact that we can't begin to have a rational discussion about the very real terrors we face, the pandemic, climate catastrophe, uh, and then that's not even beginning to touch the mass incarceration and the immigration debacles where children are caged. We can't begin to discuss solving those problems unless we dismantle the military system. So thank you for this time. Thank you. I'll let Kathy have the last word there. And thank you so much for having me and couldn't agree more. And just so proud to be on this panel. Thank you. And, wh- and where can we find, where can people find your, uh, you online and your, someone asked about your books. Uh, skepticalvet.com and Twitter at SkepticalVet, everything's there. And uh, you can listen to me uh, pontificate endlessly about these things and uh, appreciate that. Kathy, Danny, 24, we got a, 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 you guys are getting drafted to run. I'll be the vice president. Yeah. Uh, Kathy's the more steamed and been in the game longer and, and right for longer. And I'm at Voice in Wild on Twitter. And I've been co-coordinating the Ban Killer Drones campaign. Right. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. I definitely thank come you. back. Glad to. Right. Bye. Bye. That was great. Learned so much. So some updates with Time's Up. Tina Chen resigned. So that's good. Tina Chen of Time's Up. I mean, we got to burn it to the ground, I believe, is uh, the kind of understated response to it. And if people don't know Time's Up, as we mentioned last week, uh, you know what? The Katie Halper Show bump wins again. Guys, am I right? We talked about SKDK and Time's Up and how they sold out Me Too. And then what happens? Tina Chen of Time's Up resigns this week. That's how long it takes for the Katie Halper Show to move the bump. I mean, yeah, the Katie Halper bump. show bump. That's how long it takes. Also, and, we had, uh, and, uh, and oh, yeah, I'm going to update people about some other wins that we got. So okay. thank you, Leslie, for joining. And uh, have, thank you so much. Have a good stream later. Uh, thank you so much. Peace, everyone. Bye. So we have a couple of updates. So we have that. And then we also have, not to brag, but we got Chase Boudin's father, David Gilbert, got his sentence commuted by Andrew Cuomo. It's like one of the only good things that Cuomo has done. And that also, I'm just going to say, I don't know if it's a coincidence or what, but Chase Boudin did come on the show twice and he did talk about his dad twice. So that the Katie Halper show bump strikes yet again. Okay, one second, guys. Oh, Nick, could we play the Hillary Clinton video? Do we have that still? Oh, yeah, we do, right? Let's play that. It helped to create the problem we're now fighting. How? Because when the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan, 
we had this brilliant idea that we were going to come to Pakistan and create a force of Mujahideen, equip them with Stinger missiles and everything else to go after the Soviets inside Afghanistan. And we were successful. The Soviets left Afghanistan. And then we said, great, goodbye, leaving these trained people who were fanatical in Afghanistan and Pakistan, leaving them well-armed, creating a mess, frankly, that at the time we didn't really recognize. We were just so happy to see the Soviet Union fall. And we thought, okay, fine, we're, we're okay now. Everything's going to be so much better. Now you look back, the people we're fighting today, we were supporting in the fight against the Soviets. So that's just a moment of, what is it? A moment of Zen, moment of truth from Hillary Clinton. That's always uh, interesting when that happens. Well, this is a under two hour show, so that's an achievement. All right. Well, guys, this was great. Thank you, Nick. Thank you, Brad. Thank you, Varushka. Thank you, viewers. Thank you. Thank you.